Man, we are so delighted that you are here with us. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, as we read the resurrection accounts. And then we'll read this beautiful, beautiful description of what the resurrection has won for us in Revelation chapter 21. I'll read through verse 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And let's read of what that day has won for us in the future. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. It's up on the screen for you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The word of the Lord. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, we need these passages. We need these passages desperately. This is a beautiful description of Revelation chapter 21. A day in which there will be no more death and no more crying and no more pain. It's the way, it's, this is the last couple chapters and the last couple verses of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And this is the way you would think the Bible should end, right? I mean, if you're going to tell a story that's something like a couple thousand pages, it better have some decent words at the end. There better be some things to, you know, you've muddled through Leviticus and Deuteronomy to get here. You, you might as well, you might as well, you know, need some inspirational words at the end. But here's the question. Are they inspirational words or are they actually true? Is Revelation 21 just a good literary kind of excitement at the end of the book, an exclamation point to make us feel better about ourselves and our, and our difficult lives? Is it wishful thinking or is it true? There was a mom of a first grader in Newtown, Connecticut, said that the day when Bedlam broke out in Newtown, she went down with every other parent to look for her child. Everywhere, parents were frantically looking, looking everywhere, longing to reconnect with their children. She said she waited in the firehouse looking and looking as each group of school children would come in 
And then the horrible moment came when the fire chief entered and said, there are no more children. She said something happened in that moment of moments. What happened though was this thought washed over her. She thought this, that while I can no longer help or find my little girl, that Jesus had found her and that she was with him and that she was more safe now than I could ever make her. Is that wishful thinking? Or is that true? Paralyzed woman you may have heard of, a lady named Johnny Erickson Tyler. She's been paralyzed from the neck down, said this, I cannot wait for heaven because I will walk in heaven. I will run in heaven. I will jump in heaven. And in heaven, I will do the Harlem shake. <laughs> is that true? Or is that just wishful thinking? The claim of Revelation chapter 21 is this. The claim is this, in the claim of Christians all over the world this morning, the claim of those in this room who proclaim and trust in Jesus Christ is this, is that those who trust in Jesus have a bright and beautiful and eternal future where all the sad things of this world come untrue. It's not just that we get a salve, but all the sad things will be swallowed up in victory. And all the sad and sorrowful things will be made beautiful. Is that true? Or is that wishful thinking? That's the question I want to take to the text this morning and to the New Testament and to our New Testament account in Luke chapter 24 and some other texts. I want to give you three arguments this morning as to why. Why the answer to those questions is that it's true and it's not merely wishful thinking. It's not merely wishful thinking that you have a bright and beautiful and glorious tomorrow. The first reason is this. First reason in regards to the resurrection as to why that's true, not simply wishful thinking on our part, is because of the veracity of the resurrection. The veracity of the resurrection. That means the truth of it. The claim of Luke, and indeed of all four Gospels, the claim of the basic creeds of the Christian faith is this indelible fact. That there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, rose, who was di died on a cross, and three days later rose from the dead. A man who hundreds and perhaps thousands saw die and then was revealed to those same hundreds as being alive. Easter is not a mere celebration of life in some esoteric way. It is not simply some church tradition as if it's merely some historical thing that we are all getting a part of. Easter is celebrated because there was one who was dead and was, is dead no longer, who rose in victory to defeat death, and all other Christian claims, everything else that we claim to believe as Christians, the claims to eternal life or to some future resurrection from the dead or any thoughts of restoration with loved ones, all triumphant thoughts that there is a life after death is based upon the truth of this claim, if Jesus rose from the dead or not. So is it true? Is it true? The hope of all Christians is that these claims are True. There was a well-known pastor in the 70s and 80s by the name, a guy named, by the name of Francis Schaeffer, and he had actually become a pastor early on in his, in his youth and his, as a young man, but then became so discouraged about Christianity and the church that he decided that he couldn't and didn't want to be a Christian anymore. 
it set him on to a, a path of discovery uh, that took him all over the world, studying of various religions, a various kind of sitting at the feet of some of the great teachers, reading some of the great books. He studied all the religions and the great thinkers. And then he went back to the Bible and he read it over and over and over again. And when we got all the way through, he concluded that he had to be a Christian. He had to be a Christian. The reason he said he was a Christian is not because the church was all that great, because the church really is not all that great. Not because he had had some great, some unbelievably transformed life, although some things in his life had changed, that he said he was a Christian because he found that Christianity was true. It was true. Why do we think the claims of the scriptures are true? Well, because of any reason why you think something is true. Because you feel it. No. The answer is no. The answer is because of the evidence. And there are two kinds of evidence. And you're, if you're sitting in a court of law, there's two particular kinds of evidence. And there's direct evidence, and there's then this stuff called circumstantial evidence. Let me just walk through some of the direct evidence about the claims of Christianity and the resurrection, and also the circumstantial evidence. First, the direct evidence. For example, in John chapter 20, Verse 30, it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not even written in this book, but these are written, the ones I have written, that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Gospels were written, all the Gospels were written so that you might believe the truth, to give evidence to the truth. John has written his gospel as an eyewitness account so that you and I might believe. And throughout the gospel accounts, there's empirical data that are given to us. Little bits of information of eyewitness accounts. For example, we see here in Luke chapter 24, it's the women at the tomb. And we see the accounts of what they saw and the garments they saw. We see uh, no less than 15 appearances given in the gospel accounts uh, of Jesus showing up in 15 different places, showing himself and revealing himself to other people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, Paul says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Now, that's quite a few witnesses. And all throughout the gospel, the writers will give names to their eyewitnesses. Now, why do they do that? Why do they drop the names of Mary and, you know, other, the other Mary and then another Mary and Seems like there was very limited as the amount of names they had then, but there was other people that they mentioned throughout their text was all these various names. Now, were they simply giving those because they were name dropping? Were these first century uh, Kardashians that by na- dropping their name in connection to the resurrection, that it would give you a greater marketing scheme for pushing the truths of Christianity? Is that why they did it? No, the reason why they dropped these names is because they were actually the eyewitnesses and because at the time in which these accounts were written, you could actually still go speak to these people. They name dropped because it says, if you want to know about the truth of these claims and what they said about it, you can go double check with them because they're still living. You can go talk to them. Now, a word about these eyewitnesses, because some have sought to claim that the disciples and those who followed Jesus simply made up all this stuff about the resurrection. There are two things to refute that, and there's many places you can go, and at various and other times on Easter's, I have gone through the whole list of all the different theories that people have come up with to try to dissuade us from the trust in the resurrection, but I'm going to just give you two that in regards to the attack against the eyewitnesses. First is this, the eyewitness testimony primarily came from women. The testimony of women in the first century was not allowed in a court of law. 
It meant this, to use a woman's testimony as your primary source for claiming the truth of something would not help your case. In fact, in, in fact, to the original readers, it was due quite the opposite. In other words, the only explanation for why the disciples and the gospel writers would include the women in these accounts and included them as the primary eyewitnesses to the resurrection is because they were indeed the primary eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And so your options are this. You can be a chauvinist and not believe the eyewitness of women or... You can trust what the gospel writers said, they said. Second, it must be noted also that the disciples, in regards to this eyewitnesses to the resurrection, they didn't believe it happened either. There seems to be this notion for us in the modern age, for those who understand scientific invention, that those people back then, they believed in this kind of stuff. But do you see the reactions of the various accounts in the gospels? Whenever someone comes and says, he's risen, everybody goes, What? You're crazy. You ate Taco Bell too late at night. What is going wrong with you? In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, after Jesus has revealed himself, and in fact, while Jesus is standing in front of a bunch of people, it says this in Matthew 28, verse 17. They're standing there. It says that some doubted the resurrection. Why? Because they saw him die, and they were normal people. And normal people like you and me, when they see someone die, and then they see somebody show up back in their life, they don't immediately assume resurrection from the dead. And yet, and yet over and over and over again, these who said, I don't necessarily believe this on the first take, are the ones who not only said that, they, that, we, that it's actually happened, but they're actually the ones who for the next 300 years would say, I'm willing to die for this truth. Think about that. If this was a giant hoax, what exactly did the disciples get out of it? Did they get private planes and awesome preaching platforms? Did they get riches and wealth? They got none of those things. For the rest of their life, they led hard scrabble lives, and all of the disciples, except for John, end up being killed for this claim. You would think that Peter, when he's dying on a cross upside down, would finally go, okay, uncle, you've twisted my arm enough. The nails hurt. You're right. It's not true. And yet these men who at first were not willing to believe it, but became convinced of the evidence that Jesus had died and risen again, were willing to die for this fact. So that's the direct evidence. There's also circumstantial evidence, isn't there? Like, how can you account for the fact that these men, like the disciples themselves, who, when you read the gospel accounts that they wrote about themselves, were these people who were unbelievably self-absorbed babies, who even down to the last moments of Jesus' life were arguing about who was great, betrayed him, and denied him. And we see Peter who cowers before a little servant girl and denies Jesus. But these same men, after the resurrection, are willing to die for their faith. For their faith in the resurrection, they will give their lives. This is a radical change, to go from cowards to courageous. You see, when you have met the risen Lord, when you have been faced with this kind of evidence and it's actually pressed upon you that it is true, guess what? It will change you. It will change you. There was a little boy here, heard a man who was mocking Christianity and saying, I can't believe that there are people in this world who are ignorant enough to believe that someone could actually turn water into wine. 
This little kid said, well, I believe it because I've seen it. And the man said, oh, sure, little kid. And the little kid said, actually, I've actually seen Jesus do something better than that. I've seen Jesus turn wine into bread on the table. And I've seen him turn beer into meat and whiskey into rent money. Because my daddy was an alcoholic, and my dad drank his paycheck week in and week out. And we had to move from house to house, and we went to bed hungry. But when my dad met Jesus, now he brings the paycheck home. Now he works a steady job. Now he feeds his family. Now he loves my mommy, and now he spends time with me. When people meet a risen Jesus, the evidence is that their lives are changed. Paul is a colossal testimony to this, to this. In the book of Acts, we see Paul, a man who's persecuting the early Christians for these claims. He despised Christians. He despised Gentiles. And he becomes a man who's not only a pastor, not only a Christian, but is the founder of the church amongst the Gentiles. Now, what could explain such a change? He runs smack dab into the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul said it is by grace of God who revealed himself as living and breathing and reigning that I am that I am. One last little bit of circumstantial evidence is this, is the explosive growth of Christianity. If you think about this, anybody who's, those who've done significant studies historically of the great movements of various movements of religious or otherwise that have happened in the world, the Christian movement stands out them. Following the, Christi- the, the, the resurrection, there is unbelievable explosive growth in the first four s- centuries of Christianity. In fact, Christianity will grow from a mere couple hundred, as we see in the early gospel accounts, to being the predominant religion over 54 million people in the Roman Empire. And just in case you have some, some silly notions from history in your head about how Constantine made everybody a Christian, this is simply not the case. Constantine simply had the decency not to do what all of the other Caesars and and rulers had done before him, which was slaughter Christians for the previous 300 years. In other words, Christianity grew from a couple hundred to millions upon millions in the dominant religion within Rome while people were chasing them around with knives and lions. What's the explanation for that? There is no good historical evidence or reason for that and for this phenomena of growth unless, unless the resurrection really happened and unless there's something incredibly powerful that is behind this movement. Now, there's much more evidence, both circumstantial and direct, to ponder, but I simply will leave us to this last point and state this, finish this off with what Simon Greenleaf has to say. Simon Greenleaf was a noted law professor at Harvard, <clears throat> and he was an atheist, And at one point, he set out to prove once and for all through legal and forensic means that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And after years of study, he ended up being convinced that the resurrection did did indeed actually happen. And he indeed actually went on to say this, that it would take more faith to believe that the resurrection didn't happen than to believe it did not. That the evidence would show that it would take more faith to believe that the resurrection didn't happen than to believe it did not. So, why can you have confidence that we have a bright and beautiful tomorrow? Because of the veracity, the truth, the evidence about the resurrection. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's really well and good. There's, that's good. I'm glad there's reasonable evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. But that doesn't really do anything to ensure that I get to participate and partake in that great, beautiful place, that beautiful afterlife. How do you know? 
How do you know that I'm going to get there? Well, I want to look at the second thing I want to see this morning to give you assurance about the resurrection. And that's the validation of the resurrection. Assurance that you're going to live, have a beautiful tomorrow. One of the the truths in regards to death in the scriptures is this, is that sin, the violation of God's character and God's law, and death are inexorably linked together. And they have been since well before the first sin. It says this in Genesis chapter 2 in the second chapter of the Bible, verses 16 and 17. Before everything has gone haywire, God says this to Adam. The Lord commanded Adam, the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Violating God's word and death go hand in hand. Death exists because of sin. Romans 5.12 says it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and then death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sins. Why do you die? Because man sins and because you sin. Death is the consequence of sin. Therefore, if you're going to deal with death, which is the great barrier to the beautiful life of tomorrow, if you're going to deal with death, you have to deal with sin. You cannot deal with one without the other. Sin is what gives death its sting. We sang that earlier. And here's what death says to us. Death speaks to us, and death says, I'm going to bring the you to an end. I'm going to seal your condemnation because of your sin. I'm going to put your body in the dirt of this world, and your flesh will be corrupted. And as long as there is condemnation from God upon you, then I will cling to you, and I will hold you under. And sin has given voice to this voice of death. Hamlet said it in his play. This is two weeks in a row with Shakespeare. Hamlet said it well. He said, I could end it all. He longs to end his life. He's in such sorrow. But then he says, but that dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from which no traveler returns. What is he afraid of? Hamlet is not afraid of dying. He's not afraid of dying. In fact, if all dying was meant was annihilation, the end of existence, then that would be no problem. Then that would actually, for many, bring sweet relief. But he is not afraid of dying. He's afraid of death. Those are different things. See, death clings to us as the seal of our condemnation, in which on the other side of death is an eternal death. A life that is way worse than this. Therefore, in order to be confident that there is a bright and beautiful tomorrow for you, in order to be confident that death can't hold on to you, and that condemnation has released you from death's power, then you have to know that you have been forgiven and that your sins have been taken from you. That there is no longer any condemnation for you before God. And the question for many of us is this. Is a bright and beautiful tomorrow, an eternity with God, really mine? Do I get to claim that? Do I get to be assured of that? Could a sinner like me, a person who is a failure like me, actually experience that? Now, let me tell you what the wrong answer is. The wrong answer is, if I can perform well enough, And if I can do enough to keep God's law, to get in God's graces, then I will know that I can have confidence that death will not cling to me. Bill Moyers, he's a well-known journalist. You may be familiar with him. He said, I could never be a Christian because 
that call to turn the other cheek, I simply cannot do. I can't sell all my possessions and give them away. I cannot love my enemy. I can't do what Christianity asks me to do. Bill Moyers knows he can't measure up. That if it's by my performance, he knows he's in deep trouble, and so we'd rather just forget the whole thing. Darren Ermofsky, who was the director of the movie Noah, which was an awful movie, but if you saw the movie, he was the director of it. But in the various magazine articles and interviews leading up to the movie, he was asked this question. If God was going to destroy the whole world, would he be on the boat? Speaking of Darren, would Darren be on the boat? And he said this, I don't think so. I'm simply too big of a sinner to be saved. This is the truth for some of you of what you believe. The reason why you have no bright hope for a beautiful tomorrow is because you recognize this about yourself. That there's a deep, gnawing voice within you that says, I am too big of a sinner to be saved. I have gone too far down the path. I have strayed too far, and there is no redemption for me. If it's up to my performance, then I have no confidence. There is no bright and beautiful tomorrow. But this is where the good news, what we call the gospel, steps in. For people like you and me. Because it says that Christ has come to save us from this condemnation. He came to take your sin. And that's what the cross, that's what Good Friday is all about. That this is what he did on the cross. He took your sin upon himself. And therefore, he got all the condemnation that was going to come upon you via death. All the condemnation was to come upon you. He took that wrath, that condemnation from God the Father. That death that our sin deserved, he took it. So that you don't bear it anymore. That's good news. You don't bear it. But one final question remains after the cross. How do you know that Jesus' sacrifice for you was enough? How do you know he bore every one of your sins? How can you know that Jesus took all of your sin? How can you know that that Jesus paid the entire debt for all the sins that you have paid? How can you know that all your sins have been completely forgiven? How can you know that God has accepted Christ's offering and so now looks at you and doesn't see you as being condemned or sinful but sees you as righteous? How can you know that? How can you know that Jesus' sacrifice was adequate to cover all of your millennia worth of sins? The answer is the resurrection. What do you know when a man walks out of prison, when they open the gates and he walks out? What do you know about that man? That his debt to society has been paid. That the penalty is complete. When death no longer can hold on to Jesus, it means that he has paid the debt that we owed. Let me put it another way. It's like a receipt. Ever gone to a store? You purchase a bunch of items, you go through the cashier, at the end of purchasing your items, they give you a receipt. Now, if you go to many places, Walmart and other places in a mall, you go there and there's a little mall cop right there at the door. And you have your stuff that you're carrying out the door. And and they ask you the question, how do I know that you can get through this? How do I know that you've actually purchased, that you've paid for those things? And what do you do? You pull out the receipts. And it says what? Paid in full paid in full. The great receipt that you can hold up when you come out with your bundle load of sin and when the security guard of death, the mall cop of death looks at you and says, how do I know you've paid for all those sins? You pull out the receipt of the resurrection. You say, Jesus paid for all my sins. 
This is the proof. The resurrection is the proof that death could no longer hold him because he had paid for all of this baggage. Azusa Pacific College, to school out in California, a couple years ago, there was at the, at the, at the, uh, after the graduation, the president of the school had a reception for all the very important persons. In other words, all the people who donate massive amounts of money to the school. And he had invited three students, three academic elites from the school uh, to come to be a part of this VIP um, gathering after the graduation. It was three particular young men, and each of these young men who had a great careers ahead of them, were great scholars, could go on to either great doctorate or graduate programs or go get high-paying jobs, had pushed all those things aside and decided that they were going to go live in India and do ministry in the poorest parts of India. So the president tells them to come to this VIP reception, and they have no idea what's going to happen at this VIP reception They're standing there, and all of a sudden, the president calls them up, and in front of all the other donors of the school, he says this, there is a donor to this school who has given a contribution. You don't know him, and he doesn't know you. But he he called the first student up, and he said, "I, I have right here in front of you, students, all the money that you still owe to this school. You have $105,000 of student loan debts. And I want to hand you this because on this, in red, it says, paid in full. Then he called the second student up. He owed $70,000 and another student who owed $90,000. Each of them, a donor had anonymously paid for each of their student loans. Their debt was wiped out. They were free to go serve without the bondage behind them. Stamped, paid in full paid in full. This is the stamp of the resurrection upon your life. That when you stand before God, it says paid in full. And therefore, what you can do is like the Christians throughout history and like Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the mall security cop of death comes to you and says, hey, did you pay for that? with biceps too big for his shirt, and he's going to crush you. He's going to crush you. You can say, no, 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 no. I've got the receipts. <laughs> and you, what, I'm, I'm being 1 Corinthians 15. What are you doing? You're mocking him. You're mocking death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? He's teasing it. He's taunting death. He's sticking his tongue out at death. George Herbert puts it far more delicately and beautifully than I just did. In a poem, in a conversation with death, it says this. Death, death communicates to us this way. Death says, let losers talk, yet they sh- thou shalt die. These arms of my strength shall crush thee. But the Christian in the poem responds back, spare not, do thy worst. I shall one day be better than before, thou so much worst that thou shall be no more. Let me ask you quickly, do you trust in the receipt of the resurrection or are you still trusting in the receipt of your own performance? Which are you trusting in? If you want to have hope and be assured of a bright and beautiful tomorrow, the day of no crying or death or tears, and the day in which all things are made new, then you trust in the receipt of the resurrection. It is the validation that your sins are paid in full. One last point. 
One last reason to be assured of a bright and beautiful tomorrow is because of the vindication of the resurrection. I apologize for putting this one last because it's the most difficult to follow, but it is important for us today. The resurrection vindicates all the claims of who Jesus said that he is. It vindicates them as being true. You might remember this a couple weeks ago. We looked at the trial of Jesus in the midst of our series on the Passion of Christ in which Jesus stands before the chief priest, the Sanhedrin. He stands before him and they look at him and they ask him questions and he refuses to speak until they ask him this question. Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And to that, Jesus says, yes, but not only that, but I'm the Son of Man, meaning that I am the King who rules over you, that I am the true judge. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this, that you may condemn me, you may call me a liar, you may not believe my words, but I am the true judge here and I am the true king here. Now the response of the court is what? Liar, blasphemer, you must die. But the resurrection vindicates the claims of Jesus that he is the Messiah and that he is the king. If he, did, if he died and he did not rise again, then nothing he said can or should be believed or held with any authority. But if he said he was going to die, and if he said he was going to be risen from the dead, and he did do those things, then you at least have to ponder whether this guy speaks with some semblance of authority. Paul goes further. In, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, and speaking about Jesus, he says this, And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. And what declared him to be the Son of God in the Spirit? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the resurrection from the dead was God the Father's voice saying, What he said about himself is true. It vindicates him that while Jesus is justified by the Spirit in his resurrection, that while all the, the, the words of the world and the judges of this world have sentenced him, the court of mankind have condemned Jesus and called him a liar for claiming to be the Messiah and King, the resurrection says, no, 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 he is the King. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus can say, I am the judge, I am the King. And the resurrection confirms and vindicates the truth of that claim. Now, this is really important for us to see that the resurrection is saying this Jesus is king. It's saying, Your sins are paid in full, but it's also saying, Jesus is king. And this is important, and this is an implication that Paul draws out in his great passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 27. If you have a Bible turned there, it's going to be on the screen for you as well. I'm going to read through a little bit of this. Picking up in verse 21. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Therefore, if you're connected to Adam, you're going to die. But if you're connected to Jesus, you're going to be made alive. You're going to be resurrected. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. So Paul is saying here that Christ's resurrection is the first fruit. Now, the first time you see a fruit on the tree, what do you know is coming? More fruit. So therefore, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. More resurrection is coming. Then Paul keeps going in verse 24. Then comes the end 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, is that Adam introduced death into the human race, that Christ has come to eliminate death from human existence. Yet this destruction of death, as much as we'd like to say the resurrection ended it once and for all, that's not the case. And the New Testament says it's not the case. That the destruction of death will happen gradually, and the total elimination of death will not occur until the last day when Christ returns, when he raises believers to an everlasting life and utterly frees us from the power of death. Christ will reign over death on that day. And Christ cannot, until that day, he will, he will not, death will not be under his subjection until that day. Therefore, what we look at is we look to a future day when the general resurrection of all believers will be certain. Now, I want you to see the language here. That Jesus one day will push death under his feet. Why? What's the language there? It's the language of a king. The resurrection says he has the right. He is vindicated as the king. And as the king, he is bringing all authorities and all powers. And the last one will be death under his feet. And so here's what I want you to see is this. That the right of death to hold on to you has been removed. Sin gave death the right to hold on to us, but that right has been taken away because Jesus took the condemnation away. But we must also acknowledge this, that at the resurrection, while Jesus removed the right of death to hold on to us, but Jesus' resurrection was not the final existence to death. You do know this, right? You've experienced this, right? For a Christian, we can say that the ultimate sting of death, the fact that that it clings to us with its condemning hands for all of eternity, that's been put away. That's been removed. But even for the Christian, we still understand that there is a prick of death because we still die on this side of heaven. Death still remains. Therefore, we still experience suffering. And because death still remains, even with its poisonous eternal tail removed, even for the Christian, there is still a deep sorrow in this world. Because death remains, little girls say goodbye to their daddies before their daddies can walk them down the aisle. Because death remains, mommies say goodbye to children who never said their name. Because death remains, spouses who should have gotten old and been parents and grandparents with their spouse until their old age no longer have that dream. But the resurrection, and that's all true because death remains, but the resurrection says that Jesus is king of this world and that as the one who has been vindicated as king, he will bring even death under his submission and he will put an end to it one day, which is the picture we get in Revelation chapter 21. That that the resurrection day of Easter said he is king, and therefore as king, he ultimately is going to put all this stuff to death. He said, I was dead, but now I'm alive forever. And therefore, Jesus as the king over life and death will bring it all under his feet. And he says, I have the keys to eternal life. And in Revelation 21, what does he say? Therefore, because I have the keys to life and death, and I'm going to crush death once and for all. He says, on that day, no more crying, no more mourning. No more tears, no more death, no more death, no more autism, no more bulimia or cerebral palsy, no more slipped discs, no more leukemia, no more miscarriages, because he will crush it as a good king would. Now we come to Jesus in this moment of our lives, still playing the role of judge in our pain, don't we? 
and we ask the honest question of why. If you're the king and you, you resurrected from the dead, why don't you end it now? Put deaths roaming around this earth to a stop. Cease it. Why continue to allow this sorrow and suffering? And here's the answer. I don't know why. And the New Testament really doesn't give us an answer. In other words, but I want you to connect this line of thinking to our, our thought today. How will the wounds of our present suffering be made right in heaven? Have you ever thought about this? Listen, as great as heaven's going to be, won't I remember all my suffering and sorrow in this world? Won't they cling to me like stains and scars? Won't when even in heaven when you press upon the fact that I lost a child, that upon that place there will be great pain? There's nothing beautiful about that, and that's still part of my eternal existence that I've experienced these, all these awful things. The resurrection doesn't, and the New Testament doesn't give us a direct answer, but here's what it does say. The resurrection of Jesus vindicates him as the truth teller who is able to do the wonderful things that he claims that he will do in Revelation 21. That when he says these words, behold, I am making all things new, he doesn't say, I'm going to make everything new. That doesn't mean he's starting over. It means he's going to flip upside down all the awful things that have happened to you. And the resurrection actually vindicates that as being the truth. And here, let me, let me follow this line of thinking. I know this is difficult. See on the cross, in the cross is the worst thing that could have ever happened in this world. The most awful suffering, the most horrendous injustice, the most tragic rending of lovers and family members, the father and the son. And yet the, the, the resurrection does what to the cross? It makes it new. It makes the cross glorious. Why this week when Notre Dame is burning down and yet at the midst of the, midst of the ashes and the embers there's a cross, an instrument of death, and yet everybody goes, that's beautiful. Why? Because the resurrection has flipped the worst suffering and the most awful thing that has ever happened in the world and has vindicated the truth of this promise that God, who would use even a cross to do beautiful things in this world, how much more will he do beautiful things in your suffering today? In other words, the resurrection turns the cross from an instrument of death to an instrument of life. It takes an instrument of suffering and turns it into an instrument of restoration. The resurrection takes a place of weeping and turns it into a place of rejoicing. You could say this, behold, the resurrection makes the cross new. And if God would do that from Jesus' suffering, how much more will he take your suffering, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, financial wondering whether you're going to have enough, the loss of wondering whether you're going to get married, the, qu the questions and the sufferings and the sorrows of your life. How, what glorious thing will he do? In other words, what he's saying is this, is the resurrection to come will swallow all of your sorrows and sufferings in this world. And in some way, he doesn't tell us how, but in some way, shape, or form, he will make it beautiful. Thomas Schmidt wrote this story and he wrote it in two different ways. He began his article this way. As someone who was objective and, renewed and removed from the story, simply giving a report of what happened. And he said, it happened like this. It was just a little creek, no more than 15 feet wide. The horses were pulling a hay wagon and suddenly they bolted and plunged into the creek which was swollen from snow melts. Everyone jumped off the wagon just in time. Almost everyone. A nine-year-old little girl and her mother clinging to the wagon and to each other were thrown into the water and then they were swept apart by the currents. 
The mother was later found face down by the bank in shock. The little girl paddled desperately for 100, 200 yards past the outstretched arm of one who would be rescuer, and then she was taken under. It all took less than a minute. Her body was found downstream a few hours later. Then Thomas Schmidt, the writer of this article, changed the tone and the perspective of the article. He said this, her name was Susanna. She was my only child. We adored each other, this remarkable child and this flawed father. Susanna was affectionate, wise, and funny, brilliant. She was a delight. And then one evening, a telephone call came with the news that she was not coming home, that she would not get off the airplane the next day and run into my arms. She would not tell me about her vacation or tell me anything ever again. Never again would I hear that precious word, Daddy, spoken in her little girl's voice. She would never read another book, never ride her bike, never celebrate her 10th birthday or go on a date or grow into womanhood. But he ends the article this way. But on her gravestone, as a daddy, I have inscribed this. With joy still deeper than pain, gently flows the river where we shall meet again. Joy that flows deeper than pain. You want to be assured and hoped for a bright and beautiful tomorrow? that even your sufferings might be seen as beautiful and bright, a joy that goes deeper than all the pain that you've experienced here, then trust in the resurrection. Is that statement wishful or is it true? The resurrection says, it resounds, it shouts, it's true. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Easter Sunday. Thank you for, in your gift and your goodness to us, you give us a, a day every year where we get to ponder eternal things, where we're forced to ponder eternal things. And God, I, as, as someone who reads that story and has a nine-year-old daughter, and to think of the sorrow and the loss that would be experienced there, to bring our faces and, and press us into the realities of death, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me fear that I'm triggering and scratching an itch of sorrow in the midst of so many here. Oh, but Lord, I, so I pray in this moment where I have not brilliantly or beautifully articulated the resurrection that your spirit would bring the truth of it to bear. That where there was truths communicated here, that in those places of woundedness and sorrow and suffering, that by you, the power of your spirit, the truth of this would come in and compel us to believe, to give us hope and assurance and give us joy even in the midst of suffering. Oh, gracious God, where we are running from you and we'd rather stick our hands in our ears and stick our tongues out and run from you. Lord, I pray that you would awaken us. Return to us. May we evaluate the evidence. May we see the power of the truth. And may we come to you as the resurrected Lord. And may you change our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.